Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Eleven, and this is a comics podcast. This is a comics podcast for people who, in the face of a new Disney Plus show, still ask the question, but what of the comics? Well, I'm as excited as the next person to see Oscar Isaac perform in a superhero show without his handsome punum covered in monster makeup. Feh. I love to have a topical reason to dig into the comics of past and present to answer such questions as, why are there so many good Moon Knight comics? And is Moon Knight just Marvel's color-shifted Batman with more Orientalism? My guest is a really impressive new critic on the scene who has been doing a deep dive into all things Moon Knight for some time, and who happens to be my neighbor. I'm joined by Harry Casson. Hello, Harry. Hello. And for my listeners who are not familiar with his work, and you should get familiar with his work, Harry is the features editor at comicsbookcase.com, where he created the Comics Anatomy feature, focusing on craft and visual storytelling techniques. He also has bylines at 2000 AD and Panel X Panel. Originally from New York City, Harry is a college student studying English and education. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to have a chance to talk Moon Knight in preparation for the the new show that I am also very excited to see. <laughs> well, you know, one of the ideas that was from behind this is I saw you on Twitter and um, you had commented, I think, a while back saying, how did I become such a Moon Knight reader? And now I guess I'm here to a- ask you, how was it that you became a reader of so many Moon Knight comics? Well, I think I have a, I, I mean, maybe not so unique, but certainly interesting entry into various superhero characters where I really enjoy certain characters despite not having read at the time a a lot of their comics because as a kid I read so fast that comics just weren't a good investment so I was mostly reading you know novels of various sorts but I had gotten for my birthday or something like that the Marvel and DC encyclopedias Mm. Um, and so I would flip through those endlessly finding characters who had like cool art or interesting names or whatever just you know whatever the image of them was and so moon knight was one flipping through the marvel encyclopedia who caught my eye he had a cool design he had sort of an interesting backstory and then at some point i ended up with like a moon knight trading card that i like taped to my locker in school (laughs) um and so he, he was just a character who i was like really interested in and then at a certain point i started reading a lot more comics a lot more current comics as opposed to the older stuff and that was when I really got into Moon Knight through like the Warren Ellis run with Declan Shalvey that's, you know, so popular and the Jeff Lemire, Greg Smallwood run that that's my personal, personal favorite of the last, you know, 20 years of Moon Knight or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, Jeff Lemire and Greg Smallwood stuff is really great. I'm sort of like you in the sense that I was like, when did I start reading so many Moon Knight comics? It kind of happened by accident. I don't think I was ever like, you know what character I'm really eager to learn more about? Moon Knight. But I, it was more, there's, you know, there's been some really good creative teams on the character over the years. And so when you see them, you know, it, it ends up kind of jumping into it. Um, I know recently you've been lo- doing a lot of reading of the old, 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 st- well, I mean, whatever, like 1980s Moon Knight work. Yes. Yeah. And you love it, <laughs> it seems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, rediscovering a lot of of older comics right now either things i've read before because they were classics but i haven't really looked at with a real critical eye because i've come to comics criticism and sort of serious reading of comics in the last three or four years and before that i was mostly reading as a fan uh and so those perspectives are different and so i'm noticing a lot of things um 
And so Moon Knight was something where I'd read a little bit of the older stuff, you know, the, the stuff that preceded his, his solo series. And then the first very little bit of his solo series, because that's what was included in the first epic collection that Marvel put mm-hmm. out. Um, but I, I read that, uh, I want to say, six years ago or so. Uh, and, and a lot of it didn't really stick with me. Uh, and so I'm reading it again now with a sort of sharper eye after having spent so much time thinking critically about comics. I'm, um, you know, rediscovering how, how fantastic it is and how much I really love, you know, Doug Mensch, early Bill Sienkiewicz. Like there's a, there's a lot going on there in terms of creators that I like, but also just, you know, the character's really interesting too. And I like digging into like where he's been and where he, how he got to where he is now. So for listeners who aren't really don't know who Moon Knight is, like, how do you define the character? Like who is Moon Knight? I mean, I think <laughs> all of the Moon Knights. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, I think. Um, but Moon Knight is a character who in some ways sort of defies categorization uh, just because he's had so many different interpretations over the years. But broadly speaking, he's a sort of supernatural vigilante uh, who sort of the core parts that you're going to find in every run. He's a former mercenary who died and was resurrected at the altar or at the foot of a statue of the Egyptian god Khonshu, who's the guardian of like nighttime travelers. And so he takes it upon himself to, you know, protect the vulnerable um, as the fist of Khonshu. Uh, and, and in some runs, that's more literal in terms of like, he's actually in communication with this god. And in some runs, it's, it's a little less, uh, explicit and he's he's more sort of inspired by Kanshu rather than than specifically an agent of this god. I think I first heard about him in a Marvel handbook where in they said something like, and this is a superhero with three alter egos, which then reminded me of and I for the life of me, I wish I could recall which critic wrote this. Somebody said like that they thought Moon Knight had never taken off as successful. And this is before this, this was something somebody probably said around the year 2000. So this is no longer true. Um, they said, I th- they think, they think Moon Knight never really took off because people took a look and said, what is it that people like about superheroes? Why it's the alter egos. I know we'll give him three alter egos that are like, uh, mundane alter egos. Surely that'll make for a great story. And it's funny because like on, on paper, it's like, wait, why, why do you have, there's like one, he has one superhero ego and then he has three like dudes with jobs identities. That sounds like a really stressful life slash not a lot of fun. And yet, and yet when you have good teams working on it, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said within there. Well, I um, think that's a very interesting statement because I, I think Partly, I'd have to push back on the idea that Moon Knight wasn't a popular or successful character. I mean, you know, we talk about, you know, making this statement in the early 2000s. You're looking at, you know, several years of the Houston Benson stuff with art by David Finch and art by uh, Mark Teixeira. So, you know, no slouch on on teams there, but not the world's most successful comics and not the world's most well-regarded comics. But if you look at the original 1980 Moon Knight run, I mean, you know, it was one of Marvel's biggest launches at that point and a series that started in 1980 for a character created in 1975 as a werewolf by night villain ended up running for 38 straight issues. 
it was one of the first Marvel series that was sold in direct market comic shops exclusively with, you know, no ads. Like there was a lot of important stuff on the, on the, just the 1980 series, uh, that it was a huge launch for them. It was incredibly popular. And so I think a lot of that, the evidence of that doesn't really carry over to the next 20 years or so. Uh, and this Moon Knight gets tossed around between a bunch of miniseries, but then also, you know, the Mark Spector Moon Knight run started by Chuck Dixon and uh, I think Sal Valuto, uh, hmm. that lasted for about 60 issues. So in the 21st century, uh, it's easy to see that, you know, Moon Knight's not that popular up until the Warren Ellis run. But for people in the 80s, 90s, I think Moon Knight was a character who a lot of people would have been really, really familiar with. Um and then, so the second point about the alter egos, like, yeah, you know, it's three guys with jobs, a cabbie, a, a financier, and a, and a mercenary. So not the least exciting jobs, but certainly not the most exciting jobs. Um, but I think, you know, like you were saying, when you get a really good team, and, and Doug Mensch was really good at this with his, his very pulp-influenced writing, you get mm-hmm. a lot of time spent with particularly Jake Lockley, uh, the cabbie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got this whole cast of supporting characters in in Gina's Diner that like a lot of that has been lost in recent runs. Uh, But it's a super interesting, you know, it's very reminiscent of of the shadow uh, and and his sort of network of informants and agents and and sort of the Moon Knight innovation. And this happened in the shadow too, but to a slightly lesser extent was sort of folding the network of informants into the main character to a certain extent. Oh, okay. So the alter egos as the informants. Yeah, like they're they're you know Gina Crawley, Gina's two sons at, at a certain mm-hmm. point, plus you know Frenchie, the the pilot slash chauffeur, and uh, and Marlene, the the girlfriend slash investigative partner. Um, like he's got a really great supporting cast in that series. Um, but also, you know, he's got he's a cabbie because that lets him be close to the street. He's a he's a financier, so he can like raise money for his exploits. He's a soldier of fortune, so he has excuse to you know train to acquire weapons. He's got connections to uh, you know criminal enterprises, but also intelligence agencies. You see him collaborating with the Mossad for for an arc of of the the nineteen eighties Moon Knight run. So. Mm-hmm you know, you're able to sort of fold that network into the main character to a certain extent while also having a pretty rich secondary cast. It's interesting to me that it feels like Lockley, who the cab driver alter ego, is really the only one who has real like friends and a community around him. Um, it's it's sort of interesting that that was, I mean, certainly, and you know, his supporting cast gets brought back in the uh, Max Bemis um, mm-hmm. recent, I think he's the one who began the part where those folks got brought back. I don't think it was Lemire. Um, uh, Lemire had them, but it's unclear to what extent they're, they're real as opposed to figments of the, of, of Mark's imagination. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but they're the Frenchie and Marlene, uh, are, are real and present in, in the Max Venus run. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think that those supporting cast members make a mark in a way that makes you feel like Maybe Jake Lockley is more of the real Mark. Like maybe Jake Lockley is like who Mark Spector has to be to have friends. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely a part of it. I think th- this is one of the central questions of the Doug Mensch run is that you know in in the first issue of that ongoing series, the it's 
his real origin is shown because when he was first introduced, he was introduced as being Mark Spector, who got hired by this shadowy business cabal or whatever to take out uh, uh, Jack Russell, the werewolf by night. And then that's ultimately revealed to be a false origin. And the true origin came, you know, months earlier when he was Mark Spector working for um, uh, Roald Bushman, actually, in, in that issue, later changed to Raul Bushman, which whole can of worms there. But anyway, the he, he's working with this sort of despicable mercenary, um, and he, he comes across this archaeological dig, and he sees Bushman kill this older member of the dig team who is Marlene's father, and Marlene hates him for it, and then ultimately he saves her life. Um, and, and that's where they meet. And then, you know, he becomes Moon Knight. He takes on the Stephen Grant identity. He takes on the Jake Lockley identity. And when he's around Marlene, he's Stephen Grant. She prefers him to be Stephen Grant. She gets mad when he becomes other personas. And he's yeah. Jake, he's Jake Lockley around, you know, Gina and Crawley. You know, like you said, he's got friends as Jake Lockley. But it, it, there's, it's sort of explicitly a sort of textual conflict for him that he's trying to move beyond Mark Spector. He doesn't like the person he was when he was Mark Spector. And so, you know, Marlene is convincing him, no, you can be Stephen Grant. Moon Knight was something where I'd read a little bit of the older stuff, you know, the, the stuff that preceded his, his solo series. And then the first very little bit of his solo series, because that's what was included in the first epic collection that Marvel put mm. out. Um, but I, I read that, uh, I want to say six years ago or so. Uh, and, and a lot of it didn't really stick with me. Uh, and so I'm reading it again now with a sort of sharper eye after having spent so much time thinking critically about comics, I'm um, you know, rediscovering how, how fantastic it is and how much I really love, you know, Doug Mensch, early Bill Sienkiewicz, like there's a, there's a lot going on there in terms of creators that i like but also just you know the character is really interesting too and i like digging into like where he's been and where he how he got to where he is now so for listeners who aren't really don't know who moon knight is like how do you define the character like who is moon knight i mean i think <laughs> all of the moon knights yeah well, well we'll get into this a little bit later i think um but moon knight is a character who in some ways sort of defies categorization uh just because he's had so many different interpretations over the years but broadly speaking he's a sort of supernatural vigilante uh who sort of the core parts that you're gonna find in every run he's a former mercenary who died and was resurrected at the altar or at the foot of a statue of the egyptian god Kanshu, who's the guardian of like nighttime travelers and so he takes it upon himself to you know protect the vulnerable um as the fist of Kanshu. uh and and in some runs that's more literal in terms of like he's actually in communication with this god and in some runs it's it's a little less uh explicit and he's he's more sort of inspired by Kanshu rather than than specifically an agent of this god I think I first heard about him in a Marvel handbook where they said something like, and this is a superhero with three alter egos, which then reminded me of, and I, for the life of me, I wish I could recall which critic wrote this. Somebody said like that they thought Moon Knight had never taken off as successful. And this is before 
This, this was something somebody probably said around the year 2000. So this is no longer true. Um, they said, I th- they think, they think Moon Knight never really took off because people took a look and said, what is it that people like about superheroes? Why it's the alter egos. I know we'll give him three alter egos that are like, uh, mundane alter egos. Surely that'll make for a great story. And it's funny because like on, on paper, it's like, wait, why, why do you have, there's like one, he has one superhero ego and then he has three like dudes with jobs identities. That sounds like a really stressful life slash not a lot of fun. And yet, and yet when you have good teams working on it, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said within there. Well, I um, think that's a very interesting statement because I, I think Partly, I'd have to push back on the idea that Moon Knight wasn't a popular or successful character. I mean, you know, we talked about, you know, making this statement in the early 2000s. You're looking at, you know, several years of the Houston Benson stuff with art by David Finch and art by uh, Mark Teixeira. So, you know, no slouch on, on teams there, but not the world's most successful comics and not the world's most well-regarded comics. But if you look at the original 1980 Moon Knight run, I mean, you know, it was one of Marvel's biggest launches at that point and a series that started in 1980 for a character created in 1975 as a werewolf by night villain ended up running for 38 straight issues. It was one of the first Marvel series that was sold in direct market comic shops exclusively with, you know, no ads. Like there was a lot of important stuff on the on the just the 1980 series uh, that it was a huge launch for them. It was incredibly popular, and so I think a lot of that, the evidence of that, doesn't really carry over to the next 20 years or so. Uh, as Moon Knight gets tossed around between a bunch of miniseries, but then also you know the Mark Spector Moon Knight run started by Chuck Dixon and uh, I think Sal Valuto, uh, hmm. that lasted for about 60 issues. So in the 21st century, uh, it's easy to see that. You know, Moon Knight's not that popular up until the Warren Ellis run. But for people in the 80s, 90s, I think Moon Knight was a character who a lot of people would have been really, really familiar with. Um, and then to the second point about the alter egos, like, yeah, you know, it's three guys with jobs, a cabbie, a, a financier, and a, and a mercenary. So not the least exciting jobs, but certainly not the most exciting jobs. Um, but... I think, you know, like you were saying, when you get a really good team and, and Doug Mensch was really good at this with his, his very pulp influenced writing, you get mm-hmm. a lot of time spent with particularly Jake Lockley, uh, the cabbie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got this whole cast of supporting characters in, yeah. in Gina's Diner that like a lot of that has been lost in recent runs. Uh, but it's a super interesting, you know, it, it it's very reminiscent of, of the shadow uh, and, and is sort of network of informants and agents and sort of the Moon Knight innovation, and this happened in the Shadow too, but to a slightly lesser extent, was sort of folding the network of informants into the main character to a certain extent. Oh, okay. So the alter egos as the informants. Yeah, like they're, they're you know, Gina Crawley, Gina's two sons at, at a certain mm-hmm. point, plus, you know, Frenchie the the pilot slash chauffeur and uh and marlene the the girlfriend slash investigative partner um like he's got a really great supporting cast in that series um but also you know he's got he's a cabbie because that lets him be close to the street he's a he's a financier so he can like raise money for his exploits he's a soldier of fortune so he has excuse 
to, you know, train, to acquire weapons. He's got connections to, uh, you know, criminal enterprises, but also intelligence agencies. You see him collaborating with the Mossad for, for an arc of, of the, the 1980s Moon Knight run. So, mm. you know, you're able to sort of fold that network into the main character to a certain extent while also having a pretty rich secondary cast. It's interesting to me that it feels like Lockley, who the cab driver alter ego, is really the only one who has real like friends and a community around him. Um, it's it's sort of interesting that that was. I mean, certainly, and you know, his supporting cast gets brought back in the uh, Max Bemis um, mm-hmm. recent. I think he's the one who began the part where those folks got brought back. I don't think it was Lemire. Um, uh, Lemire had them, but it's unclear to what extent they're they're real as opposed to figments of the of of Mark's imagination. Uh, but mm. but they're the Frenchie and Marlene uh, are are real and present in in the Max Venus run. Yeah, yeah, and so I you know I think that those supporting cast members make a mark in a way that makes you feel like maybe Jake Lockley is more of the real Mark's like maybe Jake Lockley is like who Mark Spector has to be to have friends. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely a part of it. I think th- this is one of the central questions of the Doug Mensch run is that, you know, in, in the first issue of that ongoing series, the it's his real origin is shown because when he was first introduced, he was introduced as being Mark Spector, who got hired by this shadowy business cabal or whatever to take out uh, uh, Jack Russell, the werewolf by night. And then that's ultimately revealed to be a false origin. And the true origin came, you know, months earlier when he was Mark Spector working for um, uh, Wold Bushman, actually, in, in that issue, later changed to Raul Bushman, which whole can of worms there. But anyway, the he, he's working with this sort of despicable mercenary, um, and he, he comes across this archaeological dig, and he sees Bushman kill this older member of the dig team who is Marlene's father, and Marlene hates him for it, and then ultimately he saves her life. Um, and, and that's where they meet. And then, you know, he becomes Moon Knight. He takes on the Stephen Grant identity. He takes on the Jake Lockley identity. And when he's around Marlene, he's Stephen Grant. She prefers him to be Stephen Grant. She gets mad when he becomes other personas. And he's yeah. Jake, he's Jake Lockley around, you know, Gina and Crawley. You know, like you said, he's got friends as Jake Lockley. But it, it, there's, it's sort of explicitly a sort of textual conflict for him that he's trying to move beyond Mark Spector. He doesn't like the person he was when he was Mark Spector. And so, you know, Marlene is convincing him, no, you can be Stephen Grant. This is more the person you are now than, you know, the person you were when you were Mark Spector. Wow, that is, um, that's some like heavy stuff, you know, I think. We were talking about the roots of the character development of this character being someone associated or some of the stories sort of debating back and forth, like, does he have disassociative identity disorder? Um, you know, that's a theme that even people have talked about vis-a-vis Batman. But with my, Moon Knight, this is just like the theme of Moon Knight, really, in a lot of ways. How do you, how do you sort of see that uh, story beat for him developing across the years? Because it sounds like it wasn't just invented as a modern, ironic, detached, edgelord kind of a way to look at the character. Like, you know, you were seeing some really early 
aspects of that in how he was written. Yeah, so so the the multiple identities thing, like having multiple alter egos, it wasn't introduced as any sort of uh, mental illness um, or any sort of psychological thing. It was introduced originally as more of a practical concern of needing a place, you know, to store his money, needing a place to, you know, get information. And then having mm-hmm. the original Mark Spector identity and the new Moon Knight vigilante identity, it was, it was much more of like a, this is what a superhero would need kind of thing. But very quickly, it becomes sort of question of who he is, uh, because the way the way it's written in the in the comics is that he will sort of instantly like instantaneously switch from like one identity to the next. He's like, okay, I'm at Grant Manor, so I'm Stephen Grant right now, but I need to go get information, so I'm Jake Lockley now. And he will like his his ma- manner of speech will change. He will you know become gruff. He'll take on more colloquialisms, and pe- he'll like. He'll, you know, call Marlene doll or something like that. And she'll be like, oh God, not this again, Stephen. He'll be like, no, it's Jake. And so he's very serious about it. And, you know, the, the supporting cast, it, it being, you know, 1980, they make some pretty insensitive jokes about like, oh, you know, he's losing his mind and he's forgetting who he is or whatever. And then ultimately it's introduced into the the actual text of the comic in i believe the mini series that follows the ongoing um where it, it's a question of oh does he have schizophrenia which you know is not what we would describe that as today but is a term that was not particularly well understood then especially by people who are writing pulp stories yeah. um so so that's how it's described in in the 80s and so the the it's it's definitely not a modern invention for him to have some sort of mental illness that's causing his his multiple identities um i think that being the central focus of the comics is a much more modern thing Uh, i mean Mm -hmm. it's very present in the brian wood run that immediately follows warren ellis and it's very present in the jeff lemire run it's very present in the max bemis run that we were just talking about those things that get played up a lot in modern uh modern moon knight comics is uh it's the mental illness did portion and the the servant of Kanshu portion mm-hmm. which is interesting in in the broad scope of moon knight history because those things are some of some of the least present elements in in the original series that you know he has multiple identities but it's not a mental thing so much as a practical thing he is inspired by Kanshu and believes he's honoring Kanshu, but isn't explicitly a servant of Kanshu. He, he doesn't explicitly communicate with Kanshu. Like there, there's an arc where his Kanshu statue that he found in the tomb where he was resurrected, he he has it in his house, and there's an arc where it's destroyed, and then he feels bad about it and feels like he's lost his like energy as a superhero. And then ultimately it's revealed that the one that was destroyed was potentially a replica and he has one in his house. So that's either potentially the, the, the right one or, or is a replica itself, but that's enough to give him his energy back. But it's not like he's explicitly in communication with this God or being given any sort of power or mission, but that's the kind of stuff that gets played up a lot more in even as, as early as the late eighties, early nineties. But in that original run, it's not really the focus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just read the first issues of the solo series the other day. Um, 
kind of surreal experience. I was getting my first tattoo that I've had in a few years and I'm lying down and I'm like, ow, ow, ow. Oh, that's a good page. Ah, this is not the Sienkiewicz I was used to, but this is really interesting. I'll always have that association grilled to my mind. But, um, uh, you know, there's in the beginning of the, I, you know, I think it's the first couple issues of that series. Like they actually have that Marvel unlimited um, flag. That's like warning. What is about to follow is kind of messed up. Um, it's always interesting to me because they just speak about it so generically that it's like, oh, are you referring to this racial stereotype black character in it? Or are you referring to like, like which of these various things is this referring to? And you're presuming that the reader is going to know what it is that's upsetting is kind of a weird. Um, and it's what, it's what, it's what Disney does. Um, you know, when we watch the Muppet show a lot, it's what Disney does at the start of several episodes of the Muppet mm-hmm. show. It's like, these depictions are offensive. They always were offensive. I, I appreciate the wording that's like, these were always offensive. Um, this is not just a new thing that it's offensive. Um, but it always, I think it's so interesting to just have it be this free-floating disclaimer that doesn't actually tell you what it is that's the offensive thing. But it, it struck me how that was, you know, the first thing I saw for the first couple issues. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's rampant across comics in general then. And now the, the, I mean, you know, stereotypical, uh, depictions of, of various groups, you know, that, that's, that's something that's always been there and, you know, being, being again, the eighties, the, the awareness and sensitivity around, uh, mental health is just not there at all. Um, and, and as you mentioned, there is a certain element of orientalism to, to the, the comics as well, especially because it's always described as, you know that characters they're like in Africa or like fought in African wars and they don't give it any more specificity or, right. or nuance than that. It's, you know, Africa is just sort of this monolith. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's very present in Moon Knight comics, especially because just by, by the way it, it launched it, it, for those who don't know, Moon Knight was introduced in Werewolf by Night, as I mentioned, then had a couple issues of, uh, I believe, Marvel Premiere, Marvel Spotlight, something like that. Yeah, Marvel Spotlight. Uh, he, he had a couple issues of that as a sort of tryout. Ultimately, he did not get his own series following that. Showed up as a guest in a few other books, Defenders, Spider-Man, and then had his first solo stories following uh, Marvel Spotlight in the backups of the marvel magazine group hulk magazine which was written by doug mensch moon knight's co-creator and so he had the ability to bring his character in there though i believe it was the suggestion of of the editor mm-hmm. rather than his but anyway the the benefit of being in those in those magazines was that they were not governed by the comics code authority which allowed them the freedom to have sort of more violent more mature stories and so they're 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 a little edgier not necessarily in the racism way but just a little more explicit about things uh mm-hmm. including the racism i mean the, the implications are there in the in the censored comics but the they're able to you know more explicitly say things whether it's you know more explicitly showing violence or more explicitly detailing you know racial stereotypes i will say it i don't think moon knight's especially racist Compared yeah. to other comics of the time, they're not out of the ordinary for Marvel at the time. But yeah. because they're yeah. in the, that magazine, it's just they're able to say things, for better or worse, in, in, a, in a more explicit way. 
you know, the thing that I think is sort of intrinsic to the character that's Orientalist, but like could also be really ripe for some interesting conversation within the text is that, you know, he's this guy who's the right hand of Kansu, who his name is basically based on an actual ancient Egyptian deity, um, who was in fact the, uh, the guy, uh, his name means traveler and was perceived as, I think, part of the nightly travel of the moon across the sky. I'm not an expert at Egyptology stuff at all. And that being, you know, mystical powers from the faraway place is like, you know, built into the character. But it's also interesting in the sense that we have a character who is now written as a Jewish character. From the beginning, there was no reason that he ever wasn't Jewish. Like, I don't think there, there's like a Christmas issue or something where he talks about no, going no, to no, Catholic no. school. But, um, but he was like, you know, he, he became to be written as a Jewish character and is a character that some recent writers have used to talk about Jewish themes, which I think kind of makes the tie to Egypt potentially interesting. Also, if, if, if somebody like cares to, to deal with that, you know? Yeah, I think do, do, talking mm-hmm. about you know, Moon Knight as a Jewish character is interesting because, l- like you said, he he wasn't originally Jewish. It took until Doug Mensch left the the title. A couple of writers followed him, including Alan Zelenetz, who had previously written a couple of uh, backups and an essay in the in the Moon Knight series. But he took over the main writing duties for the last three or four issues. Very very few issues. Um, but it was in those final issues of the original series that he introduced the idea that Mark Spector was Jewish, was the son of a rabbi. Um, and so had not just a cultural connection to Judaism, but a very sort of specific religious connection to Judaism, which then is very complicated when you get into the question of, is he the servant of this Egyptian God, which I think was less salient at the time. Cause again, mm-hmm. in that run, uh, it, it was not, you know, he didn't have, he didn't have any powers, uh, except for those that he got in combat with the werewolf. They, there was a whole thing in like the very early stuff when it was a little bit more sort of toned down. Uh, it, it went away by the time the, the Hulk backups came in, but he had like powers that the moon gave him a little bit of extra like strength because he was bitten partially by this werewolf. And so he like <laughs> sort of had werewolf powers but like he didn't turn into a wolf he just got a little bit stronger during the full moon um but those were the only superpowers he ever had and then they went away by the time he had his own solo series and so he he's never had really superpowers and at the time didn't have sort of any specific connection to this god beyond an inspiration uh which you know that's not to say that there is no orientalism going on there like the the inspiration and you know what does it mean for this explicitly colonialist uh, white guy from America to take up the mantle and the the mission of this Egyptian god, right? Like that's that's still a question. Yeah. Um, but he he doesn't have like specific powers. Um, but over time, as he's become like the servant of Khonshu in a more explicit sense and become more and more tied to this Jewish identity, that really complex uh, question is still there. And various writers have sort of taken a stab at it in various ways, but it doesn't really show up it's sort of one or the other or both separately in terms of is this arc dealing with the question of what does it mean to be the servant of a god and is this arc dealing with what it means to be jewish but never really is this a a story about what it means for a jew to serve an egyptian god uh which i think part of that is there haven't been a huge number of jewish writers on the title i think alan zelenet's definitely and then I know 
Bendis, but he didn't really get into any of those questions in his run. No. And then Max Bemis, who, who again, engages with both, but, but separately, not, not sort of trying to unravel that question. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I expect the show will do none of the above. But anyway, there's something really interesting in there. You know, like Judaism is extra bonus monotheistic. Like there's lots of monotheistic religions, but we're like really extra bonus monotheistic. Like people are called to different kinds of spirituality in addition to their like religion or identity. And I think there's, there's something interesting in this with, um, you know, his rejection of his family and, uh, yeah, yeah. Know. For sure. I mean, I, I think even the question of the, the sort of very early run where he keeps the statue of Kanshu in his in his mansion and he feels like he's lost a part of himself when it's destroyed. What does it mean for this character who, who wasn't Jewish then, but is now written as Jewish? What does it mean for him to have this specific religious idol in his home that he feels not just a sort of fondness for as a piece of art, you know, this spiritual connection to like, what, what does it mean for him to participate in this form of idol worship as the son of a rabbi? I think like that's a question that just due to the nature of continuity hasn't really been addressed because since he's been explicitly Jewish and since that's been a big part of his character, like especially in the 21st century, there's mm -hmm. been very little that has to do with, you know, Grant Manor and what his life was like back in the original comics. It's been very focused on like, he's Moon Knight and he's like, he's the servant of a god and he's like crazy in air quotes. You know, that's, that's yeah. something they bring up with him a lot in the marketing. And, you know, it's, it's more focused on like his life unraveling or how he doesn't have like, he's like poorly he doesn't have friends. He's like not able to make connections to people. Uh, that's been the major focus of a lot of 21st century Moon Knight comics, as opposed to the sort of more traditional, but also more grounded take of like, he lives in a mansion with his girlfriend and his friend. And he also goes out as a cabbie and like gets information. And he has this sort of more centered life as opposed to the sort of like, he's unpredictable and like always running and his life is falling apart constantly that we've seen in, in since, you know, the 2005 run or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and it's interesting just because like, you know, he has this very idealized relationship with Marlene that I can see in some of the earlier comics. Like you can see, like they actually, you know, they get to like, they're not married. They live in the same, they have the same bedroom. They spend a lot of time swimming in the pool. She spends all her time working out and sometimes helps them with things. And it's, it's interesting because like they're in those stories, like it has sort of this um, wish fulfillment piece to it. That's just completely gone since then. Yeah. Um, I think even when the supporting cast, including Marlene get brought back, it's sort of in like a, Oh no, he pushed them away. He's made them scared of how unhinged he is. But if you, if you read those, those early comics, that's sort of not the, the relationship and not to say that things can't change. There's a lot of ground to explore, but it just feels like we've sort of forgotten that this used to be how things were, because like mm -hmm. you say, their relationship is very stable. She's incredibly supportive of him. He's incredibly supportive of her. You don't see a lot of her pursuits outside of her time with 
Steven and nope. Moon Knight. Like it, <laughs> she's she's either helping him run like charity galas or she's helping him with his investigations, which again, very typical of the time to not give her a ton or of lifting weights. She definitely works out a lot, which oh, is yeah, like totally constantly. Legit. It's um, kind but, of impressive. But then, yeah, but but she's you know, she's not complete she's not a damsel in distress type character either. No, I mean, sometimes she'll get kidnapped not. or whatever. But yeah. Oftentimes when she does get kidnapped, it's because she was actively helping in an investigation or trying to protect Stephen Moon Knight from someone like she sees him having a hard time yeah. to fight and jumps in and gets in over her head. But she's incredibly competent and sometimes just yes. ends up uh, overwhelmed by the fact that she's fighting, you know, supervillains with magic powers. Yeah, like I definitely, you're right. She's definitely not a damsel. She doesn't have a ton of personal development as a character, but she's not a damsel in distress. It's kind of an interesting um, cross-section of character to be in, given that factor. It's it's something that I think, like, if we were able to sort of return to that kind of status quo in, in a more modern comic, like, what would it look like to write a modern version of that Marlene? Like, what what would it look like if we stopped having her be constantly sort of scared and put off by mark which that's been her overwhelming status quo for the last 20 years which you know in its own ways just as dehumanizing as when she is just there as an assistant for him like what would it look like for them to have a stable loving committed supportive relationship and to give her some interiority and to give her mm-hmm. some agency and her own pursuits I, I don't know it just it just feels like there's a a lot of richness in these relationships that wasn't there in the old comics but is sort of foreclosed on by the current status quo well, I love his relationships with the other Avengers when we get to have those. Now, I, I did not read any of the Avengers West Coast stuff that he was in at all, ever. But there's so many good beats around this in the Bendis Maliv run in particular. You know, when we were prepping for this and I asked you, like, oh, what should I be rereading or what should I read that I haven't read yet? I was remembering, like, oh, yeah, there was that whole thing that with Bendis and Maliv where Moon Knight, rather than having his usual alter egos, he had the voices of three of his fellow superheroes speaking in his ear, Wolverine, Cap, and Spidey. And, you know, the comic does this really cool thing where at first you think he's like actually having this story with them, but then you realize that they're all voices in his head. They all sort of each articulate a different aspect of like what his concerns are. He gets to have a nice big freak out with them around. It's a really great run. I I just reread it and it's really freaking good. Yeah, this is not a much beloved run by Moon Knight fans, I will tell you. Um, I, while it's not my favorite, because there's a lot of really great Moon Knight comics out there, Mm -hmm. I think it is really overlooked by a lot of people who write it off as like, oh, it's Bendis, because he gets a lot of hate. (laughs) He he gets a lot of crap for, you know, writing his decompressed storylines, which we we can give up on that one. uh, Our colleague, it was Greg Silber. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who, who wrote a big, long treatise in defense of, of decompression. And I wholeheartedly agree. A, it's a good way to tell stories. And it's overwhelmingly the way we experience stories now from television to podcasts to comic books, whatever. And B, that's the, the way comics work. And there are questions about the economics of it. And is single issue buying still worthwhile in a world of decompression? That's a totally legitimate question to have. Yeah. But like it or not, and I think we should learn to like it. I like it personally. <laughs> that is the way stories are told right now. And so getting on Bendis about how you have to read six issues to get a whole story is, I, I guess he was kind of the pioneer of that. But like, 
not a hundred percent. And he no. was writing comics that had he was writing operated that everything. Way. Yeah, like that whole period. You know, his Daredevil was great. I really, I, I really loved his New Avengers, though I don't know that I would like it if I reread it per se. Um, but, um, but I, my reread of this was was really good. And I was curious. I thought maybe they'd be disappointed because the in the voices in in Mark's head were other Avengers rather than the voices of his yeah. alter egos in this one. That's that's part of it too. That's the sort of the second thing is that a people dislike it as just an approach to Moon Knight. They think it doesn't work. And I, I would have to agree if that was like the take on Moon Knight going forward. I, I think I yeah, it would get old. It. It but for old. 12 issues, it kind of works for me. Yep. The, the real concern that I, I think I can't dismiss as just people being cranky about Bendis is that it, it is not a particularly sensitive take on dissociative identity disorder, which, you know, it, it would make a little bit more sense for these to be invented personas, similar to how Lemire covered it in, in his run where this was, you know, Stephen Grant showed up as a, as a friend for, for Mark as a child because he had all of this trauma and he was lonely. Like that makes a little bit more sense in terms of what we know about actual mental illnesses that that mm -hmm. can manifest in this way. Whether or not it's it's a, a correct or sensitive thing to do in the first place, it's at least a little bit more in line with what that would look like. Right. The the idea that he would somehow manifest three actual real people that he knows is is a little bit less true to how that would come up. And so, in a world where Moon Knight does have did whether or not he should as a character whether or not he always did in a world where that's the take on moon knight this is not a particularly good way of handling that and, and i think that is a legitimate concern that that cannot be dismissed as like bendis problems <laughs> there's also a fridging that i will not go into the details of so for, for be aware of that if that's a thing that's going to be a problem for you right now i mean look and there's going to be like the, there's obviously like a bit of a of a warning sign to be hung over lots of things from these series you know i mean really the, the warren ellis and declan shelby rebirth of the character was huge i i really did feel like the rebirth of the character came from some of the bendis stuff because he had him showing up in daredevil and then they had this this mini series which felt pretty big in my head at least but for folks who aren't aware of the warren ellis you know just visit so many of us.org i'm not gonna like go and reinform everybody about this but um the Warren Ellis piece uh, was sort of, I think, really brought the character back to the idea of uh, the superhero who has a specific job, and his specific job is he protects people traveling at night. Yeah, I think the the Warren Ellis run, and thank you for bringing up the the general concerns with Ellis. Um, I think, you know, that's important to articulate, but I don't think we need to spend a ton yeah. of time relitigating it here. Um, but that run is, is really interesting just sort of as a turning point for Moon Knight because the overwhelming Moon Knight, really, like you said, Bendis is sort of the turning point, but nobody acknowledges that because, again, people have issues <laughs> with that run and with Bendis in general. But Moon Knight in the beginning of the 21st century was this very edgy sort of like he's the brutal, violent, crazy superhero. And, you know, Bendis was like, no, that's not what it is. But that was really just sort of a pickup for his Age of Ultron thing. That was what that series was for. And so Ellis is the one who comes to Moon Knight with a sort of intention of pushing Moon Knight in the right direction, not like the Marvel Universe using Moon Knight, but Moon Knight specifically. Mm. Uh, and and sort of, again, like you said, sort of rearticulates that like, no, Moon Knight has a job. He's not just a crazy superhero. He's not just the brutal superhero. He He might be 
unwell mentally. He might be more brutal than his counterparts, but he does these things. He is this way for a specific reason. And he sort of folds the, the DID and the Khonshu things together. And, and that's, that's important is that Khonshu is a god who in some interpretations has multiple aspects. And so that was originally one of the justifications for Moon Knight having multiple alter egos was that he was mirroring the god that he serves. And so when you look at the Ellis run and the Brian's Wood run, which I'm going to flag that one for the same reason. There's no yep. convenience <laughs> website. Like back Brian, to back. It's it back, back to back. To back was, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. The Wood one is notably not as good as the Ellis and Shelby one, but it's not bad is how I would oh, say. Yeah, like, it I is, felt it like a not, drop off, but yeah. It's, so here's what I'll say about the wood run just sort of generally, and then we can bracket this and go back to, to the, the earlier point. But the, the wood run, it is very much a continuation of what was going on in Ellis's run. But instead of being episodic, it takes up just sort of one storyline. It picks up some threads from Ellis's run and runs with them. Uh, it's particularly notable because it was the first time Greg Smallwood drew Moon Knight, uh, mm-hmm. which he would then go on to draw the lion's share of the Lemire run that would follow this whole era yeah smallwood um, style i think is really definitive for the character yes, now for sure so so that that's why the wood run is particularly notable is that's where smallwood first made his mark on the character um but it is pretty good it is not great it is not revolutionary and with all of the concerns about wood it is something that you absolutely do not have do to not read. need to read <laughs> yeah but that being said, it it does sort of play into the same ideas that Ellis had about where the multiple identities come from in terms of doctors view it as DID, and it might be, but also it is specifically the influence of Khonshu that is doing this to Mark as opposed to being something that was with him for his entire life, which is then again upended by Lemire. This is something that uh, some people have talked about on Twitter, some people have asked about in preparation for this episode, but Moon Knight's history as a character is constantly defined by reinvention, uh, especially recently, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. And the, the reasons for that are somewhat unclear to me. I think some of it is remarkably appropriate for the character, just because as a, a character, you know, the moon has phases, it has cycles, it comes and goes, and it does different things here and there. Um, so having a character who is who goes away he has a short series here and then he disappears and then there's a new series you know it's like the moon it, it's it's there's a new moon and there's nothing and then it comes again and then it goes away like there's some resonance there i might be reading too much into things but that's i think it's do. cool critics mm-hmm. uh and, and then yes for sort of purely commercial and 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 like practical reasons, the reason that Moon Knight can be constantly reinvented is because for many years, he's a character who hasn't been particularly popular and who hasn't had a particularly like definitive take um, up until really Ellis. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he's a character who's ripe for those kinds of innovations, whether you want to take him in a more edgelordy direction or you want to sort of rearticulate his fealty to this God, or you want to emphasize the fact that he cares for people as the current run is doing. Like there are a few angles where you can be like, no, it's this, no, it's that no here. Now I'm going to change the status quo. And there are lots of questions of like, what are the ethics of depicting things in this way? And like, I don't know, just there's a lot of different angles you can take him. And because no one angle really sticks for too long, 
it's very easy to sort of just sort of peel him off and, and bring him in a new direction. And that's happened several times over the last several years, especially as Marvel as a company is less invested in long runs and more invested in like constantly rebooting and changing people's expectations. And so Moon Knight gets <laughs> passed around from creator to creator, each of them trying to sort of redefine the character because that's what the good runs of the past have done, whether it's Ellis mm-hmm. or Lanier. Um, and so I think between the practical reasons and the thematic reasons, he is a character who is particularly ripe for this kind of treatment. I, I think also like them writing, I can't speak to the specifics of DID um, and even the controversies around whether or not it's actually a diagnosis that's, mm-hmm. you know, real or not. Like in, in IRL, I mean, um, I, I think it's nice though, when they're able to connect the mental illness to the reality of how he has had to sorry, to survive a trauma or something that is real in his world and in his life. When they're saying that Peter Grant was a friend he invented for himself because he was lonely, then this is all part of how your brain and, and life like survives, a survival mechanism. Um, there's a um, particularly high percentage of people from Holocaust survivor families have anxiety disorder. Hey, it's me. Uh, and it's like, yeah, well, you know, I can see why that inherited trauma might like make people have anxiety disorder. And maybe there's ways and times in which that's helpful for our survival, actually, even if it isn't always helpful for all things. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's ways that it can actually be good, but I also wish that someone would talk to a sensitivity reader at, you know, some point, any point at all. Yeah, for sure. When doing I mean, it. That was where his Jewish identity originally came from, actually, was Alan Zelenetz, mm-hmm. who is very connected to Judaism. Before he wrote for Marvel, he was a Jewish day school principal, and that he got tired of doing that and was like, I, I could probably get a job at Marvel. I-, I could probably find someone who could get me a job at Marvel and ultimately was able to get a job writing comics there. He was trying to find what's going on with this guy? Why, why does he have so much trauma from his childhood? What made him become a mercenary? What made him have this sort of mental illness that, that is splintering his identity? Uh, Cause he was the one who introduced the, they called it schizophrenia then, but mm-hmm. the, the idea that the multiple identities spawned from some sort of mental illness, where's that trauma coming from? And he was like, oh, he had a very demanding rabbi father. That's what it was. <laughs> and so, you know, he, he pulled from his own experience to give, give the trauma some specificity as opposed to just being like vaguely trauma, which, which, you know, that's good writer move is, is to, is to make yep. those things specific. And it totally worked. I mean, it, it opened up all sorts of new angles for how to write this character, whether or not those angles have been explored. Um, but like you were saying about trauma, regardless of his childhood upbringing or whatever, the fact is that when he became an agent of Kanshu, whether or not he is literally an agent of Kanshu or not, like the, the way the story goes is that he, he died. He, he was killed trying to defend people from this mercenary he was working with. And he made it into the temple where Marlene and her, her friends were hiding out from the mercenaries. He made it in there and then he died. And then he came back to life under this statue that he then brings back with him. So whether you want to play that as the God is the one splintering his identity or just trauma, like that, that's an incredibly traumatic event right there. And they happened at the same time. They're sort of hard to pull apart the becoming inspired or conscripted by this God versus the like literally dying in the desert from exposure and wounds. That, that's scary and traumatic. And I can imagine like that would have a toll on my mental health as well. 
Yeah. I really want to say, folks, the Bemis and who's the artist on most of the Bemis ones? It's mostly uh, Burroughs. Jason Burroughs, yeah. And also Paul Davidson, yeah. See, just for the record, folks ever wonder why there are certain people who refer to certain things as being the XYZ run, that's just the name of the uh, writer, and it's because they don't respect artists. So there's others of us who are reflecting the fact that they keep changing artists in the middle of runs. Um, Yes. They run through them, they're tiring their bodies out like a racehorse or something, and it's completely abusive and it's not okay. Anyway, um, it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> back to the point, is really good and definitely one I think folks might enjoy, as well as the Lemire and Swal- Malwood, which has got some just really stunning, beautiful art, haunting dreamscapes, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just really beautiful pensive storytelling. And I know it's also something that somebody can just randomly pick up because I, I was telling my husband I was going to do the Moon Knight episode. He was like, oh yeah, those were some good comics. And I was like, when did you read them? He's like, oh, you were reading them on vacation and you just handed me your phone to go do something. So I read some random issues of this Moon Knight run and they were good. And he had no context at all and enjoyed them. So that that speaks to something. Although speaking of artistic development, jumping back to the distant past, um, one thing you said is when you were looking at the Bilsenkevich and Doug, and as you point out, like this is one while Mensch was like writing actual Batman. He's also writing um, not actual Batman. There's just some interesting moments in the development of Sienkiewicz's art you mentioned. Yeah, so it's it's a bummer that this is the auditory medium of podcasts and I can't show some examples because it's absolutely fascinating to look at it. Well, send me some screenshots because I can include those in the slideshow of what goes up um, when the episode goes up on Blog Talk Radio. So. Oh yeah, I, I'll, I'll send you I'll send you some pages for sure then because it, it is fascinating to look at. But Sienkiewicz, um, people talk about he had this era where he was a Neil Adams clone, where he was drawing in Neil Adams' style because this is you know the late 70s, the, the Hulk backups where Sienkiewicz starts drawing the character start in 78 or 79. Uh, mm-hmm. Sienkiewicz starts, uh, he, he's the artist on the third of the Hulk backups out of, I think, total of like eight. And then he's the only Moon Knight artist on any sort of Moon Knight solo story up until issue 31 of the ongoing series, like four years later. So he has this tremendous impact on, on Moon Knight he, or he's not the only artist. He's the main artist. There's a couple of guest issues here and there, but he starts out drawing Moon Knight when he's in this Neil Adams clone phase because, you know, 78 or whatever, Neil Adams is at the top of the game. People love Neil Adams and and he's been there for a while. And so people have been trying to, you know, influenced by him trying to capture the magic of his style. And for Sienkiewicz, he's able to do it sort of. Uh, he's not Neil Adams in a number of notable ways. But then he then he starts drawing Moon Knight and I think part of what happened with Moon Knight is he was given a lot of trust by the the edit- editors and the readership. He had a lot of issues to work on as well. So he had the time and space to experiment and try new, new styles. And he was mm-hmm. inked by a lot of different people, which gave him the chance to look at his art from a number of different angles and say, okay, what if I took it in this direction? What if I took it in that direction? which I've talked with Phil Hester about this a little bit. He speaks particularly highly of the Klaus Janssen issues of the, of the Moon Knight series. Yeah. The- Klaus Janssen is like a fucking genius when, and probably one of the greatest inkers of all time. Although Sienkiewicz is also one of the greatest inkers of all time. So that's, that's the thing about 
Sinkhead, it's just that ultimately he becomes a really strong inker of other pencilers. But at this point, he is either penciling and inking his own work or being inked by other people over his own pencils. But he he takes over the, the Moon Knight backups in the Hulk magazine. I believe he's inking himself on the first one. And then mm-hmm. he's inked by Bob McCloud, uh, uh, New Mutants co-creator Bob McCloud, who also fantastic inker who introduces a real sort of leanness to the sort of like live, powerful anatomy to the, to the characters. And so Moon Knight becomes very tall and skinny, but also has all this sort of action. He's like always leaning towards something, which some of that is just Sienkiewicz coming through in, in ways that he wasn't necessarily under other inkers, but some of that mm-hmm. is, is McLeod's uh, lines having a particular effect. And he that sticks with Sienkiewicz and then he's inked by by Jansen for the first time which gives a sort of weight and energy and looseness to to his art that wasn't necessarily there before and then he's inked by a couple of people who I don't think do a particularly good job he's inked by Frank Springer on the beginning of the of the ongoing series and it's just a little they're not quite a good match but then Jensen comes back, and at this point, Jensen's well into inking Frank Miller, and so you can see a lot yeah. of that Frank Miller Daredevil influence on those Moon Knight pages. But it has a lot of influence on Sinkevich again, in terms of bringing a lot of shadows, a lot of black, in terms of not doing the sort of Neil Adams, Dick Giordano slash and splash mm-hmm. rendering. And so every time he's inked by someone new, he's learning something and he's applying it to his art. And so every time he starts inking himself again, it just gets better and better and better and better until the point where he starts inking himself exclusively around issue 22 or something like that. And that's sort of the beginning of the Sienkiewicz that we know today. And because the thing he does immediately after Moon Knight is New Mutants. And so you can see yep. like the New Mutants Sienkiewicz as the sort of, this is amazing, this is revolutionary comes directly from his work on moon Knight. like it, it's it's his work on moon Knight that takes him from a neil adams clone to the sort of fully formed powerhouse that you see in the pages of new mutants there's literally a panel in that issue you told me about the 22 there the building is blowing up and when i look at the building i'm like that building looks like warlock from the new mutants's body like there's a piece of that I think it, they think that was the issue where i saw this maybe it was a different one but it's around there and it was like because, you know, when I think of Sienkiewicz's art, like the thing I, the first thing I think of is Warlock from the New Mutants. And I was like, okay, we can see sort of the armature of that in this. Um, I, I have to share my, my favorite Phil Sienkiewicz story. Uh, I heard him speak at MochaCon a couple years ago. And, you know, apparently when he got into comics, he like shows up, he wants to work for DC because he loves DC because he, and he loves Neil Adams. And they're like, yeah, you're just a Neil Adams clone, so why don't you go do something unique and come back later? And then that's how he ended up at Marvel. Ironically, there were uh, DC continued to hire other Neil Adams clones at that moment. I'm not sure why they didn't bring him on as one of them. But it just felt amazing because it's then within a few years, he's like, hey, so I literally, like, there's like gears from a wind-up clock that I've glued to this page, which is now a collage. Have fun scanning it. <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you think of people who are just a hundred percent, do not remind you of a Neil Adams photorealistic style. It's like Bill Sienkiewicz. So you're seeing the transition between, you know, him trying to be like this awesome realism guy, like Neil, to becoming more and more abstract and expressionist and wild. 
Yeah. But he doesn't actually bring any collages to this yet that I've seen. Yeah. I mean, there, there are elements where he's doing the sort of, uh, like photo tracing photo collage kind of thing, not, not to the Kirby extent where it's like backgrounds entirely composited from like magazine photographs or whatever, but more to the extent that he's got like a face hidden in the clouds or whatever that he looks like he traced from a photograph, which I'm not like getting down on him about that. It creates a cool no, effect. It's a technique. It just, it's, it's, yeah. it's a, it's an, it's a technique exactly that, that he wasn't bringing to his earlier, more house style uh drawings and, and i'm one of the weirdos who prefers like pen and ink bill sinkevich to paints bill sinkevich give me you mm. know new mutants over electra assassin any day um which okay. I, I know i know like people are going to come for me in the in the twitter comments on on this podcast episode because i said i preferred <laughs> new mutants to electra assassin but you know what i'm, I'm gonna stake that claim um and, and so Bold. there's a lot of that development in moon knight because he's learning okay how do i want to apply ink how do i you know jansen's doing a lot of big brushy like solid areas of black that's not really something you associate with sinkevich so he definitely moves away from that but he, he learned something from it he, he he stops sort of fiddling in quite the way that neil adams or dick giordano would have and really you know focuses on on shapes i think is the big thing he took away from from jensen's time inking him and he he interprets that through his own lens i mean that's what made him such an incredible inker over other people's pencils too is that he's got this really incredible sort of thin line scratchy mark making technique um but he he's on moon knight he he's playing with a lot of things that you see come up in later in later stories i mean the, the even something like electra assassin which couldn't be more different from the the very sort of specific scratchy pencil and ink just because it's it's painted you know it's acrylic but like the shapes the way he sort of stacks the, the sort of non-linear non-literal use of space and staging is something that develops on moon knight for sure and then you can see it in in his later work particularly the the sort of late 80s stuff like daredevil love and war electra assassin even the mm-hmm. that wolverine inner fury one shot thing that was pen pen and ink but still very different from from the earlier stuff uh, I, I mean absolutely fascinating artist we could do a whole episode just on him but yeah I, I think there's so much to talk Knight, about thank you though yeah <laughs> Yeah, Moon this, this Knight, is, Moon Knight though, is an yeah. essential book for any fan of Sienkiewicz. Just if you want to see where he came from as a as a particular unique stylist. Thank you. That's really great. I, that was really eye opening when you pointed that out to me, and um, really connected. One thing I had asked you about was the current series, which I like knew it existed and I knew people liked it, but I hadn't even picked up an issue. I have now read all of the issues of the new series that are on Marvel Unlimited. So that's like the first five issues. I really like it. It's all uh, written by Jed McKay. And I think every issue you've mentioned is by Alessandro Capuccio. Yes. Yes. Each issue starts with a splash page. That's a really good splash page. And then dives into a different story of Moon Knight helping someone dealing with some supernatural nighttime oriented problem that they're experiencing. Um, to be clear, apparently this is all coming out of some crazy Avengers event where I guess Kanchi tried to take over the world, which I don't know about and I don't I don't really care. 
it was sort of like, oh, I guess there's a Moon Knight TV show. So I guess we all have to have a Moon Knight crossover event now. And of course, I am much more interested in the aftermath and cleanup of that than the event itself. I, I, I've been really, in, I've liked those first, excuse me, those first five issues that I've read a lot. Um, not the least of it for there being an amazing splash page of him lying on his back talking to a therapist with really, I should see who the anchor is, but really beautiful inking on it saying, I have an enemy. And he's back in his white suit, by the way. We should talk about his costumes in a moment. But um, yeah, yeah what absolutely. are your thoughts about the current series? Uh, I really like it. I mean, a lot of my critic friends are hailing it as like revolutionary and no insult to the creative team at all. Uh, I wasn't seeing it for a little while. It was, and part of this is just my issues with like, current marvel and the sort of interconnectedness of it all like i didn't read the avengers thing either and so yeah. like, what's happening here uh but but very quickly within the first uh we're less than 12 issues in at this point but within the first very few issues i started to see like oh i i kind of get what this series is doing now it's and, and like you said it's another series that is reminding us that moon knight is a superhero with a job uh, and, mm-hmm. and it introduces a few wrinkles to that job. He's not working with Kanshu anymore because Kanshu tried to take over the world. And so he is done with Kanshu. He's doing it on his own terms. Um, so that's, that's a really important element of this series is he's trying to figure out who Moon Knight is without Kanshu. Another important element of this series is that he's addressing things that might seem too small for superheroes. I mean, some of the concerns are like, there's like a bunch of vampires attacking people in the street. And like, that feels like it something a superhero should handle that's like a kind of a big deal uh but but sometimes the concerns are a lot smaller it's just you know one Mm -hmm. person experiencing something traumatic or frightening that he's he's not willing to overlook and i think that's an important thing to articulate for moon knight in specific but also just for superheroes in general that's the kind of thing that that i think we we need more of as the sort of scope creep like the mcu scope creep Mm -hmm. consumes a lot of comic book storytelling I like his relationship with his therapist in this. This time it seems at least like his therapist is not evil. Um, There's this great exchange. uh, She says, she's called Dr. Sturman. Um, She says, right, your religious duty. Let's talk about that. You started a church. He replies, a mission. And he says, I am the high priest of Kanshu. And she replies, but aren't you Jewish? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? And he says, my father was a rabbi. I was a war criminal contradictions are nothing new for me and I, I i'm here for that i'm here for that yeah it's a run that while it doesn't necessarily explore all of the angles that we talked about it at least acknowledges them and tries to wrestle with like okay what does it mean that this guy is jewish a war criminal a servant of an egyptian god he just tried to take over the world he's like it it, it tries to unpack at the very least what's going on there and one of the complaints about the run that, that is being addressed, the writer Jed McKay has talked about how it's coming up in a few upcoming issues, is that it doesn't really address the, the other identities. It mainly focuses on the idea that Mark Spector is Moon Knight, and that's sort of what we're proceeding from. Uh, but ultimately, I think Moon Knight's got so many different angles that you're not going to necessarily be able to explore all of them. But as a series, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is profoundly interested in understanding, okay, what does it mean for this guy to do what he does? In a way that, I, I mean, one of my major complaints was that I really liked the post-Lemire status quo of like, he has untangled himself from Kanju and he has come to terms with his identities. And he has this sort of like upward trajectory of like, I'm my own man now. And like, I control my future. 
And then that immediately gets undone in the Bemis run uh, because, you know, Khonshu is back in the mix. Because you need to have again. a reason to have these stories. Like, you need to, ha- you have to have conflict or else there's nothing there. And this is this conflict is sort of the definitional conflict of him in some ways, right? That makes yeah, him not I just think- be Batman. Yeah, and that was during Marvel Legacy relaunch, and so they were like, what are people who know about Moon Knight, who haven't read a Moon Knight comic for a while, going to know? And so they they sort of brought it back down to basics. And, and so, like, I totally understand why it happened, but, like, there was a really satisfying status quo after Lemire that got sort of tossed out. And then Venus, for all my complaints that he tossed out the Lemire status quo, introduced the idea that he and Marlene had a child, had a daughter, who then, you know, when he pushed her away and she, like, left him, she raised the daughter alone so she's like 10 now and has never met uh has never met mark but then you know that's a really interesting status quo and then because of the age of conchu avengers event like marlene packed up the kid and ran away because they were scared by mark and so now you know that that interesting status quo is gone and we're back at the like he's rejected conchu but not in terms of like He's rejected Kanchu's influence on his life, but like he's rejected Kanchu for like brainwashing him into taking over the world. Uh, and so we've got another interesting status quo, but we're like three deep in things that didn't get explored, which was my mm. main frustration heading into this book. But again, like it, it's, it's largely been resolved. There's a new, a really interesting new status quo being explored. And it is not ignorant of Moon Knight's history. It's just in a place where it can't directly follow things that have, you know, were three stories ago or whatever. Yeah, I just really hope he doesn't have an evil psychologist for once. I, I, there's nothing wrong with There are evil psychiatrists. We can see that in the gatekeeping that so many trans people are experiencing with their therapists mm-hmm. right now who are trying to keep them from getting the surgery they need. Uh, but I don't like the idea of having every psychiatrist being secretly evil and trying to ruin your life, especially when like actually a lot of people would really benefit from therapy and maybe they should get it. So um, maybe this will be the run where that he is a good therapist and they have good. I like their conversations and it's been good. It's a good framing device too. And I, yeah, I think he's doing, he has his mission right now is helping a lot of, you know, people who are kind of uh, disenfranchised socially in ways that I think are, are interesting as well. Um, for him to be delving into. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the having him have a therapist at the same time as he's providing these social services through his mission, like that's a really interesting thing too. Like what does it mean for him to seek help because he's trying to help people? How can he be the best version of himself? Because that's what he needs to be in order to support all these other people who he feels an obligation to. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's something that, that, uh, as you were saying, like, real life Jewish people who like experience these generational traumas, but also feel this sort of religious calling or spiritual calling to heal the world. Right. Like there there's elements of like, I have to support people because I feel a calling to do so, but also like I need support. And so there's a real question of navigating, like what does it mean to be unwell, but also to care for other people who are, who are unwell and who need you that I think this run is exploring uh, in, in, in some interesting ways. And there's some great quotes in there that are not just like, there's been, there's a lot of great quotes and we'll talk about those in a minute. But like this, this is from this current run. My father's God took us out of Egypt. My new God kept us there. Like, dude, Passover is coming up, having some thoughts, even though that story is entirely a metaphor and not actually based in any real world. Like archaeology is still a powerful myth. Anyway, uh, we should talk about the memes. 
Yes, the um, memes. Moon Knight. Moon Knight has Moon Knight has many memes. There have been many memes of him. Um, it, it isn't even just the like uh, where Dracula give me my money meme. There, there are many others now too. I feel like some of those memes exist because people were inspired by the "Where's my money?" one, so they looked for other Moon Knight moments to use. But he lends itself towards it, doesn't he? Yeah, I think this is another instance of Moon Knight being the weird character. Like a lot of people who haven't read a Moon Knight comic probably know that he's written as like the crazy superhero again. And so he he's also he's more it sort of supernaturally oriented and he's always sort of been at odds a little bit with the more traditional superheroes. And so he lends himself to those sorts of memes, like the one where he calls up the Avengers and they're like, What the hell are you doing? Like he's like, Dracula told me that you guys had my money. Like I don't know. It makes sense when you don't really think about it that much and you can sort of chuckle and, and let it go. But then the other thing about Moon Knight is that a lot of people haven't read Moon Knight's comics. Like people thought that the Dracula one was real for a long time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it, it's totally understandable when you're like Moon Knight fights things that are supernatural. Okay, maybe he's fighting Dracula. Maybe Dracula owes him money. I don't know. Like it doesn't really hold up when you think about it. But like <laughs> Moon Knight Dracula doesn't like set off any alarms in my head. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. maybe Moon Knight fights yeah. Dracula. They're both I mean, like, characters. Totally makes sense. It's not like Dracula continually trying to like kidnap and seduce Storm, right? You're like, I mean, every villain wants to kidnap and seduce Storm, but it's also like Dracula. Okay. That's not the genre that the X-Men normally operate in. Yeah, and and that's I mean Moon Knight more than most like that's the thing he he debuted when during Marvel had their whole monsters thing he was in Werewolf by Night mm-hmm. originally mm-hmm. and so you're like okay that kind of makes sense you're mixing your metaphors a, a little but then the other thing is people haven't necessarily read the comics and so they're not going to look at that and go like oh I know what that's from like if if you tried to do something like that with like Amazing Spider Man thirty three people would be like no. Nah. I know this one, and that's not what that is. But with mm. Moon Knight, you can kind of get away with it because people are like, I don't know, maybe. Uh, and people don't necessarily know, like, <laughs> this is out of character or whatever. They're just like, I guess Moon Knight is like that. I think he's also a stand-in for us in some ways. Like, there's mm-hmm. he's got this white costume, so you can see his uh, battle damage, as it were, quite easily. And, you know, there's memes of him, like, talking about getting beaten up, and it's like, Totally the kind of meme people post to represent their own personal struggles, right? Yeah. I mean, my favorite is the one that the edited panels from the from the Warren Ellis run where he's like being beat up by the Black Spectre. He's it's someone edited in like, let's get this bread as he's like flopping yeah. over on the ground from exhaustion. Like that one's just great. Yep. It, it, it sort of speaks to the moment. And like, I know it's edited, but at the same time, like it totally works. And this is this is my my deeply nerdy theory of why the Moon Knight memes are so popular and so enduring and so many people mm-hmm. believe them to be real. I, I mean, people like do believe them to be real. The, the one where he's throwing a bunch of weapons and he's like, random bullshit, go. Like my brother thought that was 100% legitimate. Um, <laughs> but part of I the reason that, that they're, so, they're so enduring and they're so believable is because they all come from this one particular like Facebook group and... They use mm-hmm. actual comic book lettering fonts. So they don't right. immediately tip you off that something has been edited the way it is when you see something in like Helvetica in a speech balloon. You're like, that's not real. But when you look right, at the Moon Knight right. ones, you're like, okay, that looks like comic book lettering. Sure. What do you think about his, the, the, the panel of him with Punisher or Punisher's like, hello, Mark, you still crazy? And he's like, little bit. You still murdering people? Little bit. How's your imaginary God? He's good. How's your dead family? thoughts on this uh panel uh i mean 
I like Matt Rosenberg. Uh, so that's the first thing I'm going to say is I enjoy <laughs> the writer. And that one's real. But Sorry, that, folks, to that, be clear. Yes, that one, that one is real. That is completely verbatim from an actual Punisher comic. I think I do have some sort of higher level. Like, like I think it's funny and I like when it gets shared around because I'm like, haha, that's funny. But I think at the same time, it sort of misunderstands both characters in a way. Like, mm, mm-hmm. A, they're probably not going to joke about it, and maybe they're not being yeah. particularly friendly, but like those are not things that are jokes to them. They're jokes to yeah. us. And, and so I think that's part of the problem is that it, it is operating at a level of irony that the characters do not. And I think comics where it's like it's clearly written for people to screenshot and then post on Twitter out of context. Right. Which I always find frustrating. Mm, okay. Because that's not what the art is for, basically, right? Well, that's not what the art is for. But also, it's like, when you're reading a book, you can always tell. I can always tell, at least, I don't know, maybe some people really like this. and I don't want to, like, get down on what they enjoy or whatever. But I can usually tell if something was, like, written to be shared out of context. Like, the Tom Taylor is notorious for this. So, in his Suicide Squad series, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, Same. He... he He's got this panel where, like, Batman goes to punch Deadshot, and then Deadshot picks up a dog. He's like, you wouldn't hit me, I have a dog. Like, maybe it makes sense in the story. It's a little ridiculous. It doesn't really fit the tone of the series, but, like, mm-hmm. maybe. But, like, very clearly it was written for people to share around and be like, ha-ha, so cute, or this is a really funny moment. And so I think that's that's that moment in the, in the Moon Knight Punisher dialogue. The other thing is the the question of like imaginary God and like you still crazy. It's like, it's treating those things as a surface level rather than like we've talked about for like pretty much the entire, the entire (laughs) conversation so far. Like those are things that whether or not they've been explored well have been like central thematic thrusts that are always taken seriously and explored in various ways and like are things that are deserving of serious consideration and to sort of treat them so flippantly. Well, I understand that it is meant to be a joke and they're maybe not meant to be, you know, friendly to each other. It's there's friction there and they're sort of trying to get under each other's skin. It doesn't really read properly to me uh, just just because I think those are things that are worthy of serious consideration. And if you're trying to take, you know, if you're writing a comic that does take those things seriously to then turn around and make jokes about them Mm -hmm. sort of undercuts your whole point. Moon Knight himself, though, as a character, does have a sense of humor at times, depending who the writer is. Yes, I mean, absolutely. he's not like he's not like Spider-Man or something like that. God knows. But like there is definitely funny beats throughout. Um, but then also, I mean, I guess my, my favorite the panel that I most like photographed and saved from the uh, Bendis Maliv one, though, is actually not one where Moon Knight is saying the thing that's funny himself. It's all the Avengers, New Avengers style talking about it rather than Moon Knight. And this is another one I've seen shared a lot with, with, with zero context that I actually think is delightful, which is the panel of the new Avengers hanging out in the living room and uh, Captain Marvel or then Ms. Marvel, uh, Carol Danvers saying, has anyone in here dated Moon Knight? And Luke Cage says, no. Um, I think that's Hercules says, no. Spider-Man says, a little bit. And Mockingbird just kind of looking at her like, I'm not responding to this question. And it's such like a, it helps that 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 Moon Knight is the person who they're discussing, but the joke would work even if it was a different superhero, frankly. Yeah, I, think, um, I mean, this is it's it's absolutely in keeping with Moon Knight's characterization at the time, right? Of him being the sort of reclusive, on the outskirts, too brutal, too crazy superhero. 
so like it, 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 it does make a lot of sense to sort of be like, does anybody actually know this guy? Has anybody dated him? What's the deal here? Is he a part of this group or what's, what's his story? Like it makes sense at the time, I, I think. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that they'd be, you know, joking about it or whatever. It's when, when Mark himself is joking about the imaginary God thing, it doesn't read particularly yeah. well to me. But I think Moon Knight comics with a sense of humor like that, that does totally make sense. And there are elements that have been funny throughout. And, and it, but it is usually somebody else saying something funny about him, whether it's the jokes from the original run about his multiple identities, which some of them are pretty insensitive, but some of them are just mm-hmm. like, all right, who am I talking to now that you could imagine in any, in any comic with a, a conceit of multiple alter egos? Uh, that that I think we'll mm-hmm. joke about yeah. it. Yeah, and in the end, like what that the pay that what the what the Bendis Maliv page is actually doing is, Echo is like a, a, as Carol says, you know, Echo. Oh, she wanted to know if it's okay to fall in love with Moon Knight, and the response from Luke Cage is, "Is it?" Um, you mm-hmm. know, because like that is a, you 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 have a team up with a superhero and you don't know much about him you're going to ask your friends like is this guy okay and all of this romantic subtext is all just stuff that carol is sort of intuiting which is all true and all there but um you know it has that sort of soap opera beat to it but it also has that specific kind of bendis when he's trying to be funny dialogue rhythm to it so, i think th- that's yeah. that's part of what i like about bendis actually is you know, we, you can make fun of him for his y- use of back and forth dialogue, which to a certain extent is not what comics are for, but to a certain extent, comics are for anything. So go for it. And um, he does that well. It just get get yeah. tired after a while. But like there was a good long run of me really quite enjoying it is my personal take on that. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, I still I still enjoy it at times, uh, e- even if it's like sometimes you're reading it and you're like, OK, this is the fifth page you've done this. We can maybe move things along a little mm-hmm. bit. But you know, it, it, what he's good at is finding ways to make the dialogue, even when it's funny, even when the point is that he's making a joke, he makes it do work. Like you were saying, you know, it's a question of, is it okay for Echo to team up with or fall in love with Moon Knight? It shows that they care about her. It shows that they understand her. It shows that they understand him. Luke Cage saying like, is it like that makes you question like, is Moon Knight a safe person to be around? And that ultimately ends up like these ultimately end up being really important questions and themes throughout the whole run. Like that, that's Mm -hmm. centrally important and you wouldn't know it from the dialogue being jokey, but these are concerns that exist and it's something that people do and will joke about in real life, but it's not treated as like, okay, this is a joke and therefore has no bearing on the plot of the comic. Like it, it is, it is ultimately very important plot information as well speaking of some humor though do you have any thoughts about the fact that in um the uh warren alice Declan shelby run uh and one point moon knight fights morris day of morris day and the time in an apartment building during a raid starial rescue mission Didn't because i was slightly surprised right now <laughs> so I'm i don't sorry. have any thoughts fair enough um yes uh morris day from New nouveau funk group of the 80s and early 90s morris day on the time that's definitely morris day that guy in the purple suit with like the slick fade and the three stripes shaved into his hair with the two golden knives like that's literally just like and now moon knight will fight morris day um i i also found out from um someone just today apparently uh mark specter is a big fan of dazzler which i did not know did you know this 
I think I've heard, music, I've heard about I mean. it somewhere. Yeah, I think I think I saw that in something or other. I mean, that that's the kind of thing that happens a lot in comics where you learn that like Jessica Jones went to high school with Peter Parker and had a crush on him or something like that. Um, so you know, like those, those kinds of things are, I think are, I think are funny, um, and like enjoyable and help the universe feel more interconnected without like demanding mm-hmm. that you read a million issues of something else to understand the joke. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I don't mind references to real world people, whether it's sort of visual references or, you know, naming streets after people. I mean, in Batman comics, it can get a little ridiculous oh. when every street and every <laughs> building is named. It's like Finger Avenue and, and you know, you're reading through it like spraying. I get it. He's like, Arpaio Street. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you, they, eventually you like run into things where it's like, OK, that guy did maybe three issues of Batman in like 1972. No one's going to remember that. But I don't mind those things in principle, I, I suppose. Uh, and, and, and so that's, that's what that feels like to me, that, that Moon Knight, Morris Day uh, uh, reference. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, one listener question that I want to make sure we hit for sure is, let's talk about the suits. Let's talk about the outfits. Um, you know, a friend of mine was like, yeah, it's don't love how he looks like he's in the KKK. I'm like, I guess, but if you're drawing his cape right, he really doesn't. But we all sort of had a sudden ooh moment when um, Declan Shelby like introduced him in that very uh, Elijah Snow from the Authority style white suit that we see introduced for the first time, I think, for the first time in the Morris Day. Morris Day, sorry, in the <laughs> Warren Ellis Declan Shelby run of the series. Uh, yeah, so so in terms of Moon Knight costumes, there's like subtle variations before that. I think the the only big costume change, like major, there, there's a couple, but the the major major costume change in early Moon Knight is when he goes from um, in his first appearance in this costume designed by Don Perlin for uh, Werewolf by Night that he keeps for his first few stories. His cape connects to his wrists, and he can use it to glide. Um, mm-hmm. so that way he doesn't have to like hold it to, to do that. He can just sort of put his arms out. His hands are free. Um, that was changed by Bill Sienkiewicz. Actually, I think it showed up in the previous story drawn by Keith Pollard, but was, I think Sienkiewicz's design either that, or he was the first one to like, just draw that from the beginning of a Moon Knight's story. It's sort of associated with him anyway. Um, and so it was changed to the sort of crescent-shaped cape that we're, we're more familiar with as the classic Moon Knight look. Then the other big change is that the costume was originally made out of silver so that he could fight like a werewolf. Uh, and then ultimately, <laughs> uh. ultimately, it was always colored as like white with blue highlights, uh, which makes sense. Limited coloring technology at the time. Yeah. But it was always described in the, the captions as black and silver by Doug Mensch. And then ultimately it being colored white for like 20 years, it, it's described as being a white costume in the early 2000s. And that's sort of another big costume change. And then, like you said, the, the suit, uh, Mr. Knight costume, uh, it, he actually, he wears a suit in an issue of Warren Ellis's secret Avengers drawn by Michael Lark from a few years mm. prior or like a year prior to the, the Shelby Ellis run. But 
the the it's a it's slightly different uh in, in execution and and in terms of its significance the the mr knight identity being the one in the suit versus just moon knight wearing a suit um so so lark and shalvi sort of both get credit i would say shalvi's version is definitely different um between the you know the the raid issue where he's got the like drive-in gloves and then sort of just because it, it shows up in the first issue but it's it's very specific uh it's more put together yeah. and he like sheds layers and you can see like a vest and the various other things in the later issues uh that one sort of captivated people i i talked at length about uh, on twitter about it when um when they revealed that look for the for the tv show because i wasn't a big fan of the poster mm. uh, partly for the reason that i think shelby's costume is extremely like minimalistic it's got it's just like clean white suit three-piece suit uh single breasted like it, it's got it's very clean it's got very few flourishes it's got like moon-shaped buttons on the cuff and that's about the only flourish it has um versus the show version where it's like it's got all these patterns in it it's double-breasted it's it, and it's They've got their reasons for that. I'm sure that it, it fits better with the show's overall design aesthetic. The big departure is that in, in the Shelby and Jordi Belair art for that run, Moon Knight's costume is only white and black. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no gray tone. There is no hatching. It's just pure, clean, bright white. Everything else is, you know, has gray tones and like ink washes and things like that to give it some, some texture. Uh, but the suit, the suit is pure stark white, uh, which creates this really cool effect where it like pops off the page. And, and then when you look at the TV show, it's got the same sort of like gray brown lighting influences from the rest of it. And I think that's the big thing for me is that it's not as like bright and poppy uh, in the show as it is. In the comic, which is, is why I think it was so sort of shocking to people when that run first came out is that just, it's like visually very stark. Um, and he, he feels like yeah. he's sort of coming right off the page in a really great way. Well, definitely has to do with the way it's drawn also, like with the gloves and the, when the, you know, the sleeves come up and it's like hot, right? Like there's an element mm -hmm. of sexual, of like sexiness to it that is such a left field kind of a thing from what we'd been seeing with him, you know, for some of the more, in some of the other recent stuff. But, um, I, I, uh, but the Elijah Snow outfit thing kind of was like, oh yeah, like he has, he has an interest in people with that kind of, you know, from the authority, he has an interest in like putting these guys in these white suits. It's like a thing. Yeah. I think, yeah, definitely. Like there, there is an element of it where I think the, the sort of attractiveness of it, like, I, I know I'm a big fan of like classic men's fashion. So it totally spoke to yeah. me as well. Um, in terms of like, okay, what does Moon Knight look like as a, as a character in the 21st century? Um, but also in terms of like, how can we make Moon Knight appealing both, you know, sort of like visually appealing and like, like sexually appealing. Yeah. Uh, uh and also I think it's sort of, it, it reemphasized the idea, like you said, that Moon Knight has a job, like he's got a job, he wears a suit, he consults with the police. And then he goes and beats someone up like, okay, he's still, he's still beating people up. It's, he's still a superhero, but at the same time, like <laughs> he's going to work, he puts on his suit and he goes to work. Uh, and, and it's, it's also just sort of the off kilter. Like if you're trying to indicate that someone's like not a hundred percent, 
on the same page as the rest of the world, having him like fight crime in this clean white suit. Like, obviously that's going to get messed up. That's a terrible decision practically, but he does it anyway because he creates a particular impression. And so it's, it's good storytelling. It's attractive, you know, visually and physically. Uh, and it, and it sort of helps reframe what Moon Knight is doing from standard costumed adventurer stuff to more like, this is my job. Very cool. I think you nailed it. I have one other listener question I want to make sure we hit, which is, I'd love for someone to do a serious analysis of Jake Lockley's transformation from how he was viewed as a positive force for Moon Knight in Vengeance to his more villainous turn in recent years. Do you have thoughts about that? So... Disclaimer here, I have not read the the most of the early 2000s, the, the Houston Benson Hurwitz stuff, so mm-hmm. I can't speak to uh, Vengeance, I think it's, is the, the Hurwitz run. I can't speak directly to that, but I think this is a really important question, so thank you for this one. Because Jake Lockley, like we were talking about earlier, like you said, is the Moon Knight who has friends. He's not, you know the most polished person. He's sort of rough around the edges. He's a New York cabbie. I don't know how many people are New Yorkers, but it makes sense that he's not, you know, the same as Stephen Grant because he lives a very mm-hmm. different life than Stephen Grant. He's constantly driving around, sleeping in his cab. Like you're, you're going to be a very different kind of person. He's more man of the people in, in an important way. And he's got friends who rely on him and who he talks to and who trust him. Uh, and so I think Jake Lockley being a, a positive force is is absolutely central to that interpretation of the character. And I, I guess I'm glad to hear that that continued. Um, but like, yeah, he, he's he's a little rough around the edges socially, potentially, but not necessarily a violent person inherently. That's, we, you know, reserved more for Mark Spector, who was, you know, a war criminal and and a mercenary. Yeah. But like he he's like I think there's I'm 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 a little bit behind in finishing uh the Bemis run, but it sounded like it was about to go in a direction where Lockley was like a killer or something. Well, this is if you have read the Brian Wood run, which there's no reason to expect that anyone would have read that. It's not uh Feel free to like spoiler things earlier. by Brian Wood, especially from like, I don't know, a decade ago. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, just if, if people are familiar with the, this. Um, so Warren Ellis more or less did away with the Lockley Grant Spectre Moon Knight system and replaced it with like Mr. Knight, Moon Knight, uh, Mark Spectre, and the like Khonshu bone armor Moon Knight thing that he uses to fight the ghosts. So mm-hmm. that's, um, that's sort of an, a new, a, a re- relatively recent reinterpretation that sort of puts that original set of identities out of the way wood in his first issue has mr knight and then he mr knight is like on the phone with detective flint and he's like he he needs to beat a bunch of people up and so he switches to lockley he's got this really weird costume where he looks like half like a crash test dummy and he's Hmm. like really brutal and beats people up like incredibly brutal ways to the extent that like flint listening over the radio is like horrified by what he's doing but that identity is like labeled as Lockley. And I think it might be just the classist assumption that working class cabbie mm-hmm. means more violent, or there might have been an attempt to sort of incorporate the old identities into the new ones. I'm not a hundred percent sure what the decision making was there, but I think that was an early part of it. 
where, you know, Lockley being sort of working class, blue collar, not the most quote unquote educated or put together, like translated into him being violent, uh, unstable. And I think like you yeah. were saying with the Bemis run, like, uh, do you need me to spoiler the Bemis run or can we talk about that? It's fine. We, we were about to, let's just say folks from here on out, there'll be spoilers of something that might be more recent. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So, so for the Bemis run, I mentioned that Marlene and Mark had a daughter together and that she moved away and raised the daughter on her own, but it's ultimately revealed that she missed Mark so much that she would call him over while he was, um, while he was Jake. And so Mark doesn't remember any of this, but Jake came over and they would sleep together. And she was essentially cheating on Mark with Jake Mm. because she missed him. And so the daughter grew up with uncle Jake around, but not with her father. Um, and so I think that's an interesting idea. It's got elements of like fight club, fight club two kind of stuff going on. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Which, you know, is a fun direction to push Moon Knight, especially given that, you know, we're in the 21st century post Fight Club world, like kind of an interesting idea. But I think that was the area, again, where Jake takes a more villainous turn and is sort of actively hostile to to Mark and to this sort of push to become a better person in a way hmm. that he was sort of representative of the push to become a better person in the earlier stuff. Yeah. That's, that is a pivot. And, um, I think it's a good take. And I does have to make you wonder if there's certain class-based assumptions around who gets to be good. Um, is there anything that we have not covered that we should cover? I think there have been a couple questions about whether or not Moon Knight is a Batman. I think someone on Twitter asked us about this and you mentioned it as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't know. This is the kind of thing where it can either be settled really quickly or we could take forever dragging out the specifics. <laughs> um, but if you want to get into it, I'm happy to get into it. Yeah, sure. I I feel like in some ways we've talked about the ways in which the character is different from Batman, but I, but he is a Batman archetype. Um, and I think that some of the things that have been done to make the character be more complex over the years are the things that have made him be more distinctive from Batman. I mean, there's even parallels between the Lockley persona and some, and one of Bruce Wayne's personas like matches Malone in a way, mm-hmm. but like matches is not a good dude. And Jake Lockley for most of the time, like is a good dude. I think that if you're going to look at superheroes as, you know, I think Cerebro cast has, you know, done a good job breaking this down in some ways. There being different kinds of superhero archetypes. Like, yeah, like Moon Knight is a Batman, but he's not just Marvel's Batman. So the, the, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely, I mean, that's, that's a sort of pretty common assessment, I think. Um, and I think he's not Marvel's Batman uh, and I don't want to give people the impression that he's Marvel's Batman, but he does bear a lot of resemblance to Batman. Uh, and I think it's an archetype. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, And I think if we're talking about in terms of like subject matter of series, modern day Moon Knight comics have a lot more to do with modern day, either Batwoman or Ragman comics, mm. if we're really going to draw cross-company comparisons, uh, okay. just because Bat- Batwoman also has a lot to do with sort of supernatural experiences, supernatural villains, just like Moon Knight does. And it also, she's explicitly Jewish. I, I will die on the hill that Batman is Jewish canonically, mm. but it's not an element of his character that's really written about very much, whereas it absolutely is with Batwoman. 
And so I think they have a lot to say to each other there. Uh, but then also Ragman, another character who sort of has, they have similar costumes. They have similar backstories, though some of that is writers of each copying the other at various points to make their stories more similar. Um, but they're both Jewish. They both have supernatural influences and powers. They have supernatural enemies. So I think that's the more interesting comparison. But my most nerdy and my most probably controversial contribution to this conversation is that <laughs> Moon Knight and Batman are only incidentally related. And it happens because they are both direct descendants of the shadow. Uh, and and what, I, what I mean by that is that Batman very obviously is influenced by the shadow. The original Batman story was a straight up swipe from from a shadow pulp the, the case of the chemical syndicate and bill finger mm. had said as much so that that's sort of settled business but in terms of you know batman originally used guns just like the shadow that's where a lot of the batman orientalism comes from because mm. it's all present in the shadow uh and, and moon knight came from the sort of second great wave of orientalism in comics you know heralded by doug mensch doing stuff like uh master of kung fu uh and so He's got a lot to do with the shadow in that regard too. In terms of the multiple identities, the shadow maintained multiple alter egos and disguises that he would don. In terms of having a an information and support network, the shadow absolutely had that too, just like Moon Knight did. Supernatural villains they share. I think I think Moon Knight has a lot more to do with the shadow than present day Batman. Uh, I, I mean, like '80s Moon Knight has a lot to do with the shadow. He's moved away from that influence as it's become more about the mental illness and the religion, and less about the sort of pulp hero roots of the character. So both Moon Knight and Batman have moved away from that. Uh, but but I think that's where that shared influence comes in is that they're both influenced by those pulp stories, um, and and that's where they get a lot of their their sort of creative DNA. That's a great insight. Thank you. I think, I don't know if you or somebody else that said there's the continuity with Ragman. I mean, they're both Jewish. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about the Ragman comparison? <laughs> so uh, I, this is something I've thought for a while, and it's, it's not something I'm alone in thinking. Um, the, the costumes being very similar, that's something that's always been there, and I have to chalk that up maybe more to coincidence. The Ragman is an earlier character, sort mm -hmm. of. The creation history with these guys is ridiculous because like the current moon knight definitely comes after like early ragman but like earliest moon knight earliest ragman like around the same time though it's hard to say which direction the influence ran but then things change or it it's confusing but anyway the point is that uh that they're they're visually similar they both neither of them was originally jewish but both of them were made jewish later i don't remember what order that happened in i think it might have been moon knight first um but i think part of the problem with that comparison is that even moon knight having you know only recently come into his his big current wave of popularity and having you know being someone character like people people will know about moon knight now in a way that they might not have 15 years ago mm -hmm. ragman's not a character that anybody no. really thinks about he's very much sort of like if you're like really into like old joke Huber art, you're going to be like, yeah, Ragman, but like nobody else talks about Ragman. And so it's hard to make that comparison stick because you're going to be like, Moon Knight's Marvel's Ragman. And people are going to be like, what? <laughs> Who?
Um, I have to send you the Jonathan Lethem column of the top five most depressed superheroes. This is a column he wrote for Details magazine in like 1999 that just stuck with me as being the fucking funniest thing ever. I clipped it out of the magazine and like had it on my dorm wall. Um, and he has a really hilarious and amazing take on Ragman and that, that I will share with yeah. you. I, Wait, have I, I sent my, it to you? No, you haven't sent it to me. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, I would like to see it, but uh, my curse is that I, I'm a big fan of all these like cloaked characters. <laughs> if they've got like faceless masks or they wear flowing cloaks, like Moon Knight, Ragman, Shadow, Question, like uh, any of that, I'm mm. like, I'm a sucker for those. Uh, so I, I have read more Ragman comics than the average person. Still not that many because there's <laughs> not that many, but more, including the recent Ray Fox, um, Inaki, uh, Miranda run that redoes Ragman's origin and makes it very similar to Moon Knight's origin. Oh, um, wow. That's and weird. So there's sort of a constant back and forth between those two characters, way more so than, than with Batman, I would say, because if you're cribbing from Batman, people are going to notice. If you're if you're stealing from Ragman, people are going to be like, oh, look at this brand new and innovative thing that you're doing, even though it's been done elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I am, um, you know, hoping for the best of the TV show, but not really sure what to expect. Um, I, I fully presume that the show is unaware that people can be both Jewish and Latino. Uh, so, and also that Oscar Isaac is Jewish and Latino himself. So I fully expect that aspect of his character to be, to be completely ignored. Um, but we shall see. Do you have any, any hopes, thoughts, or about that coming up? So, I have some thoughts on the question of casting Oscar Isaac. I think absolutely the idea that you can be both Jewish and Latino, like that shouldn't be a contradiction, but so many people assume that it is. Um, and in terms of casting specifically Oscar Isaac, my understanding of that is that it seems very much like they cast the least Jewish person that they could defensively argue was Jewish because it's in his ancestry, but he talks specifically yeah. in interviews about how he was like raised very Christian. And so like, it's yeah. not his experience at all. And so yeah. maybe he yeah. could play someone who is culture, who's like ancestrally Jewish, but to play the son of a rabbi, I think probably demands a little bit more firsthand knowledge of Jewish life. But, but ultimately that's not going to stop me from watching the show. I'm a big fan of Oscar Isaac. And I think that Benson and Moorhead from what little I've seen and from what I've heard about their other projects are really cool upcoming like sort of rising star horror creators, directors. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm excited to see what they bring to the table as well. Uh, and what really has me concerned is the fact that it is six episodes at like half an hour per episode. That doesn't feel like a lot of time to develop a whole huh. new character and his mythology. I, I could be wrong about that. I saw that in one place. I think there are six episodes, but they might be an hour. Don't quote me on that. But it it part of my problem with some of these these Disney Plus shows is that they just do not give the teams the space to develop the stories. And mm. these have so far been with characters who we knew already, who you didn't have to introduce their whole deal. And so I am a little worried that we're not going to be able to get a satisfying story out of the six episode series. More so than I am worried about the questions of uh, Oscar Isaac's Jewishness uh, or the the creators of the show. Though I will say that having having talented actual craftspeople working on a Marvel project 
does not goes guarantee a long way. that well it doesn't guarantee that the studio won't come in and screw things up so very true entirely entirely possible that this is another bland marvel project that has any ounce of life sucked out of it by uh production mandates but at the yep. same time it's got all the ingredients to be something really cool and special and so i have to at least be cautiously optimistic and whatever it is we know it won't be adequately gay so there's also that fact. yes um that is ultimately the <laughs> issue so tell me uh tell our listeners where they can keep up with your awesome work so if you are interested in my opinions about comics, you can find me at Lee Kassen, L-E-E-K-A-S-S-E-N on Twitter, where I am absolutely insufferable because I'm constantly talking about comics. And uh, wonderful. That's how we met. We did not meet by running into each other at the grocery yes, store. We yes, met indeed. on Twitter. If you are not interested in my half-formed thoughts, you can find me in more fully formed style on comicsbookcase.com where i write the regular comics anatomy feature and edit other people's contributions both to that column and to whatever they want to write about i write particularly about visual storytelling and narrative techniques but we cover all sorts of comics related things and occasionally if you follow my twitter i'll mention that you can find me elsewhere i've written for panel by panel and 2000 ad also about comics, sort of the nitty gritty of comics storytelling and some some sort of cross media comparisons. Uh, but thank you so much for listening. Hope that you uh, learned something about Moon Knight and maybe you're going to pick up a new comic. Fabulous. Thank you. I guess I should give one thing, which is that I have not read the one on Marvel Unlimited with Smallwood on art and Jeff Lemire again. So I have a suspicion that it's probably good and we'll probably be checking that out. Didn't mean to interrupt. The inside scoop with that one is that it is just the original Lemire Smallwood run reformatted for the vertical scroll format. So if you are a fan of Webtoon uh, and haven't checked out the Lemire Smallwood comic, that might be for you. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there you go. That is an interesting thing to do. And that comic would be really interesting in a vertical format. Huh. I can feel it. Well, as for me, I, I am on Twitter. A little bit too much, perhaps. Uh, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Uh, we will probably be covering this Moon Knight show on the podcast, most likely. Um, I'm not going into movie theaters, especially because people aren't wearing their fucking masks. So you'll have to wait for my Batman coverage till the till that movie is available to watch at home. Um, but I have an interview with a really amazing uh, Marvel Comics writer coming up very soon that I can't wait for you all to listen to. And as we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs>